0: If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill.
1: Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Friday, April 19th, 2019. As we were getting ready to record the show today, Disney broke news about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, right?
0: Yeah, it's coming to Disneyland Resort in 2022. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was an interesting little tidbit that was tucked away in this announcement, and it explains why they made the announcement on Friday. Mm -hmm. which is that the Walt Disney World version is not going to open until spring 2020, when it was supposed to open this year. And it's in all of the Disney's Hollywood Studios' 30th promotional materials, too.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, to hell with it. I'm just going to tell this story.
1: Yes, we've been hearing that this thing was delayed, and evidently there are some construction-related issues. There are some manpower-related issues, but... There's another thing here, Drew. Do you remember when Mickey's Toontown opened at Disneyland back in 1993? And then one year later, we saw Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin open in the same section of the park. Supposedly, Roger Rabbit was completed. It was was ready on time. It could have opened the exact same day as Mickey's Toontown. But the thinking was that what are we going to do for year two? How are we going to get people to come back? After they've tried this land, and it's like, okay, let's hold back this ride. So they basically mothballed it for a year. Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, if they get past a lot of the construction issues, it could be open as early as holiday 2019. Okay. But there's also some thoughts, you know, to the effect of the entire world is going to start coming to this theme park in August once Galaxy's Edge opens. And why create yet another reason for the whole world to come to this park to try the you know the first ride through with Mickey and Minnie and all the amazing effects that you'll be able to see in this thing so it's like let's push this
0: back so you're saying it could be open at the end of the year but they're choosing perhaps to keep it under wraps
1: i think at this point the couple of conversations that i've had about this it's one thing to go from a december january opening to a spring. Right. The spring decision is supposedly deliberate. The upside is, don't be surprised if in, say, the February, March, April window, you see Mickey and Minnie's runaway suddenly pop open for soft openings. They're going to have to uh, anticipate how do we handle the crowds for this? How do we do the queuing and all that? So this is a more complex situation than just we're having tech problems we're having trouble getting enough construction workers you know all that sort of thing this there's some other stuff going on here
0: so uh, let me i I mean is my one of my favorite shops the gag Mm. factory is that is that remaining
1: yes that's safe the downtown toontown is hands off in fact they made a very very deliberate choice about the positioning of this building because If you were to fly over the park in a helicopter and look down when construction is complete, in theory, you could walk out the back door of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway and inside of a minute be inside of Galaxy's Edge. They're going to be that close to one another.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: But if you're a guest, you have to walk the better part of a mile. Even from Galaxy's Edge, the entrance at the top of Big Thunder Trail, through Fantasyland, up through Small World Plaza, under the the Berm, through Toontown, all the way back. And that's deliberately being done and set up that way, Drew, to bleed people off.
0: Oh interesting.
1: Yeah, out of Black Spire Outpost.
0: Well, that's interesting, too, considering that for a long time, people had sort of marked Toontown as a potential spot for Galaxy's Edge. They
1: had. They had. And thank goodness Paul Felix, right? He's the gentleman who did the the brand new set of Mickey shorts?
0: Paul Rudish. Paul Rudish.
1: Paul Rudish. Okay, my mistake. But yeah, those shorts, in a lot of ways, saved Mickey's Toontown because, you know, Mickey had this huge resurgence in popularity. And it's kind of ironic you're going to walk by the bland corporate Mickey's home, you know, that was created back in 80, you know, for 83, and then go experience this crazy ride with the reddish take on Mickey, which has just been great fun since day one.
0: Well, is there ever any, uh, is there ever a chance that they'll ever do another Roger Rabbit ride? Or is that, or the rights and everything so naughty that they could never untangle it for another attraction?
1: Paul Rubens has been out there doing some press out ahead of Galaxy's Edge, you know, because he's, you know, they're, they're retooling Rex. And
0: Did you see that I held the Rex Bluetooth speaker at uh, Star Wars Celebration, the no. number one? Yeah,
1: yeah. No! Oh, that's so cool.
0: Yeah, um, he, he can ru- drive around, and he actually interrupts your your music with his little catchphrases. It's, it's pretty cute. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, 20 recordings from Paul Rubens in this little droid. Anyway.
1: That's so cool, but when you know Paul's history with Roger Rabbit, and some of this has to do with how, well, welcome to Marwin. Marwin yeah. did. Robert Zemeckis is kind of looking for a hit now, because it's been a while. Evidently, there have been some new Roger Rabbit-related conversations. So Interesting. Uh, Interesting. The downside of that, though, is this is still a Disney slash Amblin thing, and a lot of clocks have to chime at the exact same time for this thing to work but but evidently Zemeckis himself is sort of trying to get this to happen again and remember you know what was it like you know within the past four or five years he's talked about there is a script we all seem to like it but it's just it's getting things to line up the right way and given that Mary Poppins returns didn't really do the numbers that Disney had hoped likewise Tron Legacy. What are the chances that, hey, yeah, let's do another sequel for a movie we made back in what, 1988? I don't know if I would get all that excited about this. So.
0: Well, uh, and in December, I asked him, mm-hmm. asked Robert Zemeckis, and I said, "Did you ever? Would you ever want to return to that world?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, look, there's a really good script at Disney for a sequel, but I don't think it's on their agenda. There are no princesses in it." <laughs>
1: You know what that says to me? It says, you know, I bet there was a rewrite you know, after <laughs> yeah. Marwin, and it's like, can we get Elsa into this? How can how, you know, <laughs> Anna and Elsa have to help Roger. You know, maybe right? Maybe they're helping him move his house. I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and then he, and then he said about Toontown. I mm-hmm. like Toontown because it makes you nervous. When you're in Toontown, I get anxious because it's kind of nuts. I think they mm-hmm. really captured the thing that was the essence of Toontown from the movie. It's almost like at certain points you say, I've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So uh, there you go. See,
1: again, this is a guy who's still thinking about this world. and Yeah. But like I said, on the heels of Tron Legacy and, and Mary Poppins Returns. Though that said, didn't just the other day I had somebody telling me that they were kind of surprised that as part of the big Disney Plus Investor's Day presentation that they didn't mention that Tron 3 is potentially being considered for I guess year 2 of Disney Plus.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything on that front, but I would not be surprised mm-hmm. if that happens. Yeah, but it was weird that they, that it was excluded.
1: When you talk with folks on the Disney Plus side, they talk about how the movies are going to be made for Disney Plus. They're not blockbuster budget movies. They made the comparison to they wanted them to be sort of those live action comedies. Like, for example, the Santa Claus. It's really not a coincidence that, you know, one of the projects that's coming out through Disney Plus is uh, what is it? Noelle?
0: Noelle, yeah.
1: Yeah. About Santa's daughter. And I guess that's the reason why they're talking about doing Tron 3 through Disney Plus, because it turns out this is the affordable one. Yeah, because the gimmick is that the things from the virtual world come into our world. Yes, so correct. you know you're not spending all this money on CG. Your people are riding light cycles and that sort of thing out in the real world. And didn't they get uh, within inches of doing this in Vancouver? I mean, oh were... yeah,
0: it was it was ready to go. And I don't know what exactly turned them off from it, but yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was a go movie. And mm-hmm. from what I what I was told, it was almost like their bid to create a kind of Marvel-type world within the Tron world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure they'll circle back. If they have a script that everybody signed off on already, and, you know, I could definitely see it happening.
1: Speaking of the Disney Plus presentation... Did you see the the Simpsons clip they used? Uh, that was so of-
0: good. It was it was so funny because I was walking around Celebration mm-hmm. as the investors meeting was going on, so I had to mm-hmm. kind of like peel off from the floor and and watch some of this stuff. But yeah, it mm-hmm. was it was really great, really cute.
1: I love the whole Homer. I welcome our new corporate overlords. You know that the lovely callback to the the Kent Brockman from Deep Space Homer. I for one welcome our new insect overlords. <laughs> Okay, the downside of having corporate overlords is they make decisions for you. And, and did you see this thing where, what was it, the mouse guard two weeks out from the start of production got shut down by Disney?
0: Yeah, that's crazy. But I, did you see that, that people are looking at it already?
1: Yeah, I heard one of the conversations was with Netflix, but this is a little pricey for Netflix. It had a budget of $170 million. Oof. But Andy Serkis and Artist Elba were already signed up, and it, this was supposedly based on the Eisner winning comic, but it was the sort of the log line was Game of Thrones for mice. Right. Supposedly, what Disney told the so- folks at Fox is like, look, we need you to focus on lower cost family fare. And again, kind of ironic because we were just talking about that with Santa Claus and Noel and how that sort of stuff is going over to Disney Plus. But they were also told that what we need Fox to do is put out movies that are PG&R. So we have a place to put the Deadpool movies. So
0: Right. I mean, I don't know anything about this property, but I think it sounded pretty commercial. So I think it's interesting that they they cut it so close.
1: But you have to wonder, we're sitting here now, it's three weeks since Dumbo was released to theaters. So far, that movie has only sold $94 million worth of tickets in North America, and which isn't great news. In fact, it's kind of ironic that Dumbo's production costs, oddly enough, were also $170 million.
0: Interesting.
1: So, you know, it just I'm sorry, I see a little connective tissue there. And overseas, Dumbo is doing better. It's, it's $178 million in ticket sales. But well, when you compare how this Tim Burton film is tracking right now at the box office versus... John Favreau's Jungle Book, which, which was pretty much released in the, the same release window three yeah. years ago. After three weeks in North America, that reboot of a hand-drawn Disney film had sold 263 million worth of tickets. And basically three times the business that the Burton Dumbo has done when that's not great news.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few reasons why this has not performed i mean if people like you aren't getting Mm -hmm. a kick out of it then that's a problem clearly Mm -hmm. and -hmm. then i think it has even less resonance with millennials and people who are younger like Mm -hmm. who's throwing on dumbo you know for a casual watch not a lot of people true but yeah but it hasn't been a good it hasn't been a good year for animated movies or animated adjacent movies at all really oh
1: god yeah i mean if you think about
0: missing link i mean i Did you want Did you go see it? Yeah, I mean, it's a
1: charmer. It really yeah. is. It's it doesn't you know hit me the same way that say Kubo or Paranorman did. But it's a but it's a beautiful film and and got a lot of charm. But just eight million dollars worth of tickets during its first week. Yeah, that's not good. With Travis Knight headed over the hill to go direct the six billion dollar man for Warner Brothers. I, I guess they're doing what the Mark Wahlberg's supposed to star in this thing.
0: Right. I, be a little nervous
1: if I were working at Leica.
0: Yes. It is the lowest, I think the lowest opening weekend for any Leica movie. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's half of what the previous lowest opening was, which was for Kubo. So yeah, it's not a great it's not a great number.
1: It's been a a rough year so far for animation. If we look at how to train your dragon in the hidden world, that's topped out at 158 million, which is dragons 2 did 177 million domestically back in 2014 and the original dragons did 217 million back in 2010 and lego movie 2 the second part everybody in the industry is like yeah we did bad but look at wonder park oh my god you know it's like (laughs) so the hollywood reporter just did a story about this that, that this really isn't an animation problem Ticket sales in 2019 are currently at a six-year low. A lot of people in the industry are now looking toward Avengers Endgame, Toy Story 4, and and Frozen 2 to to turn things around. Uh, Speaking of Frozen 2... Did you see that tweet that Kirsten Anderson Lopez put out four days ago?
0: I was alerted. I, you know, this might come as a surprise to you, Jim. I'm not mm. hounding Kirsten Anderson Lopez's uh, Twitter account quite like you are. I'm sorry, but yeah, but you, yeah, you alerted this uh, to me, and mm. it is it is telling. Should I read what it says? Sure. It said, "We made a song where there never was a song today." Idina mm. Menzel is the greatest inspiration and storyteller.
1: All right, I was working the math here. We're 7 months out from Frozen 2's November 22nd gonna release date this year.
0: And what are we even closer to, Jim? D23 Expo. And do you remember when she came out and sang Let It Go months before anyone even knew what Frozen oh, was? Oh, interesting point. I am wondering okay. if they looked at the movie and said, "We don't have a Let It Go to mm-hmm unveil to the world in august we gotta get cracking
1: wow yeah that's interesting because it just i there's this wonderful presentation that kristen and bobby did just after the broadway musical version of frozen opened last year and that's
0: your favorite musical right Jim?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, right, right up there with cats. <laughs> you know, like, in fact, ideally, that's what I'm waiting for—the next movie, Snow Cat. <laughs> anyway, that they were talking about. You know, the thing is, if you actually take a look, a close look at "Let It Go," it said we wrote that song back when Elsa was still the villain of the movie. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's like it said, you if you you dig down into that song. There's still a lot of villainous Elsa in there. But again, that's supposedly the song that turned the whole project around. So I guess for me, the fact that, you know, hey, we created a wonderful big new song for Idina you know, Menzel, seven months away from the film being released, it's sort of like, really? I'm a little concerned, but on the other hand, I trust Kristen, I trust Bobby, so I, I'm sure things will be fine.
0: A lot of late nights at, in Burbank over the next few months, I'm sure. I guess
1: so. Well, we'll think, speaking of changes, if we, we pivot now to the DreamWorks Illumination side of the fence. Right. Been shifting some release dates around. Crude's now, it's now being moved into the release date that Sing2 had, which it was being released December 23rd, 2020, mm-hmm. on the exact same day as Avatar 2, I think. From what happened with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and Winnie the Pooh, we, we know what to call this, Drew. This is right. called the, the Death Slot. Right. I feel kind of bad there. On, on the other hand, this isn't Chris Sanders and, and Kirk D'Amico, right? It's I, I forget who they've got doing crew kirk
0: was still on it for a little while when mm-hmm. chris left to do call of the wild but mm-hmm. yeah i don't think i don't think either none of them are, are on it now but mm-hmm. in that in that press release that talked about the release date changes they did confirm that garth jennings is back to write and direct sing too which i'm very happy about
1: yeah yeah in a weird sort of way they've got a, a bunch of the numbers up on youtube and on a tough day, I find myself circling around to "Don't you worry about a thing." Right, it's a wonderful piece of animation and a, and a beautiful version of, of that song. But Sing
0: is Sing is probably my favorite Illumination movie. If I'm is it really? It. Yeah, I think so. It's got kind of its own idiosyncratic charm mm-hmm. that I really okay. like. Did we talk about? Uh, oh, we did talk about the uh, Secret Life of Pets. Uh, attraction, right? Uh, we, at did. we did. Universal. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that that area of Universal Hollywood is going to become an illumination area. Mm-hmm. And part of me wonders if it was pushed back in time to get something up out of the ground for opening. Because it's interesting mm-hmm. that Pets is pushed back. You know, Pets is opening this year, but the attraction mm-hmm. isn't opening until next year. So I wonder mm-hmm. if even if it's a stage show or something, that they can get something going by July 2nd, 2021. And that gives them a little bit more of a runway there.
1: I would love to see that. I would just wonder how you'd pull that off, though. Yeah.
0: It's clearly one of the big franchises that Illumination is investing in. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting.
1: Well, now, speaking of big animation franchises for for Universal, Trolls has mutated into that as well. I mean, we've got... (laughs) Trolls World Tour coming out April of next year, but I know you talked about going to the Mickey the True original pop-up in November, but I totally missed that in the same window of time on 57th Street, just off of Times Square, they opened the Trolls Experience?
0: Yeah, I I had no idea about this until you had just told me about it yeah
1: you get to go into this this building where at one point they offer you a troll makeover where you you can get the hair and given that you know my forehead goes back about five feet now this this sounds very appealing to me you know just you know go in and see what i remember what it was like to have hair
0: god knows i'd love to see that but yeah
1: (laughs) but just this past week they announced that Not only do we have this Trolls Experience thing that's supposedly going to travel around the country, but there is now Trolls Live. And it's an arena show that the DreamWorks folks are doing with V-Star, which evidently is an arm of Cirque du Soleil. Really? Yeah. So it's a uh, 60-city tour. Starts in November this year. In fact, the, the interesting thing is that when this show goes live... On uh, April 22nd, I want to say the very next day, members of the Troll fan club can buy tickets in advance. And on the other hand, members of the general public have to wait till May 3rd to get their seat down front to look at Poppy. And
0: Who is a member of the Trolls fan club?
1: There's a whole lot going on in the world, Drew, that I am not aware oh, of. Oh my lord. On the other hand, I cannot tell you the number of listeners to fine-tuning who have sent me the video clip from Universal Studios, Florida, where Troll, Poppy, and the Glitter Troll come out, the the walk-around character versions, come out. And at one point, the cast member or the team member at Universal, who's wearing the Glitter Troll costume, turns around to the people who are waiting to do the photo meet-and-greet autograph opportunity. I'm not entirely sure how he he manages to flip his butter, that sort of thing, but a cloud of glitter comes off of his butt cheek. So it's it's, it's one of these things where it's like, I don't think, you know, having a walk-around character simulate farting glitter, I'm not sure Universal Management signed off on this.
0: Very creative, very creative. If that glitter got on me, though, I would be so enraged.
1: (laughs) We're gonna now we're gonna transition from trolls to whom the bell tolls. We're, when we get back from our commercial break, we're gonna talk about Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Obviously, the reason we're talking about this film is the tragedy of Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, you know, the, the fire that consumed this 700-year-old building. It turns out the area that was over the main cathedral, o- above the ceiling, it's known as the forest. And the thing is, it was filled with dry 700-year-old timber and crates of artifacts. And... But the interesting thing, if you know Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, this is where Quasi lived. Do you like this
0: movie, Jim? I
1: actually like this movie quite a bit. In Me fact, too. It has, I think, one of the very best scores of the second golden age of Disney feature animation. But it has such a weird development history. I mean, do you know who came up with the idea for this movie? No, I don't. David Staten, the guy who was eventually the infamous president of disney animation he was the guy who was in charge from 2003 to 2006 he 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 was the one who shut down feature animation florida he shut down the paris studio he was the one who eisner basically turned to and said we're making this an all cg operation because we're going head to head with pixar and
0: he came up with the the secret lab right actually i think secret lab predated him interesting okay
1: But David basically lost his job because in, what was it, January 2006, Disney bought Pixar and John Lasseter came through the door and started calling the shots. But
0: David wasn't a guy who was known for his creativity. Let's just say that. Yeah. he He was not a Katzenberg kind of character.
1: The story that he told about Hunchback is that he remembered as a kid reading the classic comic book version of Hunchback and thought, wow, it's this really vivid story, and it really does, in a way, lend itself to animation. But again, he proposes this idea in the early 90s, and when it starts making its way through the development pipeline is right after Beauty and the Beast came within inches of taking Best Picture. For Disney, this was an event that really kind of got people in knots at the company because they were like, we, we were so close, we... But we can do it the next time. And, you know, which is why Pocahontas went from John Smith and Little Princess Pocahontas being 10 or 12 year old kids to full grown, handsome adults. And with Hunchback, I mean, Kirk Weiss and Gary Trous- Trousdale coming off of Beauty and the Beast. And so it's all right, we need to make an important movie. What's important? And it's like, well, what about this Victor Hugo novel? And so, what is it? 1993. The development team flies over to Paris, and they actually spend three days exploring the Cathedral of Notre Dame, visiting, you know, wandering the hidden stairways, and you know, going behind the scenes and all that, and getting a sense, real sense of the world. So they they work on some concept art, and they made the trip over to Paris in October. In November, they're sitting down of '93. They're sitting down with Michael Eisner, and it's it's Dave Goes is. Standing at the front of the room, making the pitch to all the Disney executives. And 14th century Europe, a dark and dreary time, a time of hopelessness, a time of. And before Dave can t- continue, Michael Eisner from the back of the room is like, Euro Disney! You know, which was much funnier then because this was when Euro Disney was circling the bowl. You know, they were having to make all these deals with bankers to try to keep the place afloat. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, you have a sense of humor about this. Good, Michael. But Michael, for some reason, fell in love with this material. In fact, I, I think you and I are both fascinated, Drew, by, by the idea that this is supposedly Michael Eisner's favorite Disney animated film.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, he was the one that kind of pushed along the German stage production, right? Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: yeah. That that one popped up in uh, 1999. Completely German. You can... You can chase down the the soundtrack today. It's very different from the version of Hunchback that's now being done on stage. That that debuted at the La Jolla Playhouse back in 2014 and is now done more as a choral piece. And I mean, with a full chorus of, of 40 people on stage and the performers step in and out of the chorus to become Quasimodo and Esmeralda and Phoebus and Frollo and all that. But... The characters you won't see step out from the new stage show, though, are the Gargoyles, which were in the German version of the show, but they were wildly controversial from day one. Really? Uh, Well, initially the idea was it wasn't three Gargoyles, it was just two. Quasi was up in the bell tower and he had his two friends, Bella and Boris, as in Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. Right. And and so Bella was going to be sort of the crude, you, know, you must go down, you must, yeah. Where Boris was going to be the more thoughtful one, oh, quasi, not to think about this. And But over time, it was sort of like, that's eh, a little on the nose. And so they then started going, well, what if you had a trio of gargoyles he was dealing with? And at that point, they were Lon, Charles, and Quinn. And the names came from the three actors who had played Quasimodo in live action films. They had, uh, that was Lon Chaney, uh, Charles Lawton, and Anthony Quinn. And you reminded me, uh, you know, as they were, uh, you know, working on the film for a long time, the voice of the character that was initially called Quinn, the the female, was voiced by Cyndi Lauper. Yes. They thought, you know, having a cute little female voice and kind of quirky because... Cindy coming off of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And, you know, so they were kind of looking for that off-the-wall kind of persona for Quinn. And it, it never quite worked the way they, they wanted. And I'm told that when Kirk and Gary went to Cindy and, and told her that, you know, they were going to have to recast, that it just would work. She was heartbroken. Right. And she'd always wanted to be part of a, a, a Disney animated feature but remember, the, the upside of this is that Cindy Lauper has since reinvented herself as a Broadway composer, in fact. she Didn't she take home the Tony for the, the song she wrote for Kinky Boots? For Kinky Boots. What Disney wound up doing was they then decided to flip Quinn to an older woman, and that's when they reached out to character actress Mary Wicks, very first actress to play Mary Poppins. Really? Yep. I, I want to say it was for CBS and an hour-long television adaptation of the Peel Travers story, but yep, first Mary Poppins. But then by then, the whole thinking at Disney was like this Lon, Quinn, Charles thing. That's great for film buffs, but it's, it's going to mean nothing for people actually watching the movie for the regular movie going public. That's when the male uh, gargoyles became Victor and Hugo, paying tribute to the the author of the book. And Laverne actually came from the Andrew sisters because the Andrew sisters were Patty, Maxine, and Laverne. And well, if there's going to be three of them, the third one's going to be Laverne. Now, the big question, Drew, what are your thoughts on A Guy Like You?
0: I like it. I think it's great. Do you not like it? No,
1: no. I, okay. I you know, In fact, I love this number from the film. Is there, it, a
0: con- is there a controversy around it?
1: Actually, a lot of controversy. Really? The, the, okay. It was, and in fact... Doubling back to us being concerned about Christian and Bobby writing a new song for Frozen 2, seven months out, they were doing test screenings of Hunchback, and they would get to that sequence where Quasi's up in the tower and he's about to have his heart broken by Esmeralda and Phoebus, and it was so dark, it was... So sad, they were like, we need to do something here to lighten the mood. And this was the last number written for the movie, and it was like, go crazy. And they did. In that sequence, you can see it was an image that went through the entire production process, but they could never figure out how to put it in the movie. It was going to be Hunchback of Notre Dame's little Simba putting his paw in... Wufasa's footprint, you know, the image that sort of summed up the whole movie. What was it? You know how when there's a moment when he's looking around and you see Quasi's looking around at the bells in the belfry and you see his image distorted? Yes. There was originally a scene in the Court of Miracles where in order when uh, Phoebus and and Quasi broke in, the way they were going to guarantee that Phoebus and Quasi were not going to reveal to Frollo where the lo- location of the Court of Miracles was, where all the thieves of London or excuse me, Paris gathered. They were forcing Phoebus to marry Esmeralda. You can actually see a callback to this very, very late in the movie. Literally, in like the last five minutes of the film, there's a moment where you see Phoebus is happy that, that Esmeralda is al- alive, and so is Esmeralda, and so They embrace, and then they stand back, and Quasi steps up and puts his hands over their hands?
0: Yes, I remember that moment, sure.
1: Okay, that was supposed to be, Quasi was supposed to be Phoebus's best man at the wedding in the Court of Thieves. When it came time to seal the the marriage, Quasi was supposed to put both of his hands on top of Esmeralda and Phoebus's hands, but before that he was supposed to give a toast. And so he picks up a chalice— His heart is broken because, of course, he loves this Merle. He wants to marry this beautiful gypsy. But, you know, Phoebus is being forced to do this. And he picks up a chalice and he looks in the chalice. And because of the curve of the chalice, his face is distorted. And you you see there he is. There's a reflection back as a normal human being.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: He's not deformed. He's handsome. And -hmm. it's like how cruel to be forced to give away his love. And to see, you know, what might have been. And, and again, this was one of these things where through all of the versions of the movie, everyone agreed, oh my God, that's ridiculously mo- moving and we have to find a place to put that in. And But the Court of Miracles scene never worked the way it was supposed to. There was a huge love song there called As Long As There's a Moon, which, by the way, made it back into the stage show. In the end, Hunchback, you know, Eisner loves it, so we have to support it. But the PR team are like, how the hell... Do we sell this movie? Yeah. Do you remember the posters? They joined the party. You know, they, where it showed this conga line of the characters were at the tail end. Here's Frollo sort of looking on disapproving, but he's still in the conga line.
0: Right. Not exactly the movie that it, it wound up being.
1: And then when you think about where they held the premiere, you know, where they, they had the big street party in New Orleans and and then had that huge screening for tens of thousands of people inside of the Superdome which you may recall from Hurricane Katrina
0: I'm obs- I'm obsessed with the big premieres from from that period the Pocahontas and Central Park the Her- Hercules in New York all those mm. are so fascinating to me
1: you then talked to the poor guys who worked at Feature Animation Florida who the entire time they're working on Mulan, it's like, oh, and they'd been clued in. Well, you know, we're thinking about holding this one in San Francisco. We'll take over all of Chinatown. We'll have an amazing parade there. And by the time Mulan was ready to launch, you know, and they'd had, you know, the box office fell off from Lion King to Pocahontas to a Hunchback to Hercules. By the time Mulan was teeing up, it's like uh we're going to just
0: hold this at the Hollywood Bowl, guys. Okay. Still that's still pretty good, you know, but yeah.
1: I think overall Drew this movie, I think it has has aged well. The one thing I think that stands out in a bad way is the CG crowd stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: And I know going into Hercules, they did some more CG and this, this the next generation of the crowd stuff and it, It's not quite as bad, but you watch it today and your eye does get pulled.
0: (laughs) Well, the other thing that I was, after you and Len were talking about Atlantis and the proposed submarine attraction, I went back and started watching this hour and a half long documentary that you can find on YouTube. I'm not sure if it was on one of the home video releases, but it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a feature length making of documentary about Atlantis. And -hmm. you can tell that those two guys were so drained by the process of doing beauty and the beast and hunchback back to back that they wanted Mm. to have some fun. Little did they know that, uh, Atlantis would be just as much of a pain in the ass, if not more so than anything Mm -hmm. that came before it. But we can save that for another,
1: uh, no, I mean, Atlantis in a lot of ways is a heartbreaker because it's like, I mean, there's a great making of book of, of that where it's filled with Mike Mignola's concept art for it.
0: Oh, yeah. Did I ever tell you when I called him up and started and talked to him about it? No, no, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I called him. It was when I was working at Disney and I did a whole article about it and he told me, which I couldn't include in the article.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: said there was a guy at Disney who was, whose only job was to come up with elaborate deaths for characters. <laughs> that that was the kind of movie that this was at one point. It just breaks my heart because that movie had its had that kind of grit taken away from it and is now kind of an innocuous movie. But, I I mean, I still like Atlantis. I just wonder what could have been had they actually done the real Harryhausen-y version that they wanted to do.
1: Oh, God, yeah. And that one monster you get in the montage when they're underground and making their way to Atlantis, there were, what, four of those? One for, what, all of the four points of the compass? uh, Right. You know. No, just just a heartbreaker, but circling back to hunchback again, it, it, Disney thought they had a huge hit. You were talking about how you loved the, the hunchback store in Fantasyland, right Yeah, or... yeah,
0: I mean it's it's fascinating to me to think that there was an entire store permanent store for what at least six months that was just hunchback stuff yep. Yep. I mean that's and... crazy.
1: All right. Well, anyway, Mission Impossible, that's cheery, right? You know, that's cheery.
0: A- We've got some great guests coming up that I can't talk about yet, but we were just at the home of a certain Oscar winner uh, yesterday. I'll tell mm-hmm. you off the air, Jim. And so we have a lot of great episodes coming up. And, yeah, I think you'll i think you'll really like it. Uh, so light the fuse. I was also on that panel at Celebration that you uh, could not attend, mm-hmm. uh, which is now up on Coffee with Kenobi. So you can listen to me. Crack wise.
1: By the way, I, I have heard from so many people that you stole that panel.
0: <laughs> I doubt that you have heard that from any person, but no, I appreciate it. No, no. I've so, I oh, heard yeah.
1: from, from multiple people that, that in classic Drew Taylor fashion, you, know, just, <laughs> <laughs> you drove it straight into the rocks. So, yes, know, yes. Yeah. Really looking forward to hearing this. Uh, speaking of, of Mission Impossible, though, did you see that? Is it uh, the New York? Is it the Met or? What oh, it's showing? at the
0: it's at the Museum of Moving Image. Yeah, they're showing all six, uh, including the first five on thirty five millimeter. For like thirty five dollars or something, it's part of an action movie retrospective. And we, if we could fly across country and do it, we would. We actually just saw a thirty five millimeter print of Fallout in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. one of two prints they ever struck a Fallout in thirty five millimeter a couple of weeks ago. So if that is any indication, I mean, to see the original movie again on the big screen, uh, mm-hmm. it would just be amazing. So yeah, check that out.
1: All right, on our side of the fence, folks. Uh, let's see, what we got. Uh, Disney Dish with Luntesto. We got the podcast I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. We've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse uh, and of course the Marvelous Disney uh, podcast and let's not forget about looking at Lucasfilm We're again just recorded that last night with Dan Zahir and he was singing your praises, Drew. Loved hanging out with you in Chicago. Oh, so great. head on over to iTunes and rate and recommend those shows and Subscribe to Bandcamp. That's it for now. And we'll be back soon, folks. Till then, take care.
0: Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.